open our spiritual ears and show us everything that we need to know out of this book. And so we are looking at first, let me get these mics together. We are looking at first Samuel today, and we're still in chapter 16 this week. And as we look in chapter 16, we're going to see what it means to be a part of God's big plan. And so the title of today's sermon is, in fact, God's big plan. But it also is going to show us several things about the dynamic relationship that Paul, that Saul rather, has with David here and how the focus of this text and the focus of 1 Samuel will gradually move towards that relationship. Now, it is also going to be important here for us to think about how God has chosen David, but when he chooses him, how David is effectively nowhere near the throne of Saul. In fact, as we saw last week, if there was anybody else in the house of Jesse who was furthest away from the throne of Saul, it was, in fact, David. And so we're going to see how he gets from where he is, keeping sheep to the very throne of David, and we're going to understand that that is a work of God himself. And so today, when we look at Scripture and when we look at how God takes David from where he is to where he's going to be, we're going to see that in the midst of God working in the life of David, he is also working in the life of Saul as well. He is getting up and close and personal with David, yet Saul, who has rejected him, is getting further and further away. And so this working of God will not only show us how he causes improbable things to happen, but it will also show us how he... ...and being disobedient in your will. God, there are only two places we can be, and it's only by your grace and by your mercy that any of us is obedient. And so we pray, God, that you would help us see today the importance of being obedient to your will and where we stand in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we open up here seeing that the Spirit of God had actually departed from Saul. And it says here that a harmful spirit came upon him. Now when we hear that, we think, okay, maybe a demonic spirit came upon Saul. But then when you read it, it doesn't just say that a harmful spirit came upon him, but it says that a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon him and tormented him. Now, if you really are going to wrestle with the text and wrestle to understand who God is, then this actually is a difficult text for us to read. Because when you look at it with your first glance, there are things that God is doing here that makes us uncomfortable. And it will require us to have to wrap our minds and our hearts around the God of the Bible and not the God that we've been told exists. The first thing that we see is that the Spirit of God was upon Saul. Now, this was not saying that this was the filling of the Spirit that we see other believers filled with that Saul had. But it does mean that God has placed his spirit on him in order that he might equip him to do the work that he had called him to do. 
If you remember, when he was appointed king, he was also anointed to be king as well, meaning that God was with him and ordering him and directing him and leading him. He had empowered him for his service in order to do what God had called him to do. He was anointed, meaning God had set him aside to do what he had called him to do. And his spirit was on him. In other words, for that time, he'd been given a special grace for God's service. Now, this is not uncommon to see in the Old Testament when it referred to God sending his spirit at certain times temporarily on individuals so that they would be able to do his work. Now, that doesn't mean that these individuals are filled with the spirit, but it also doesn't mean that just because God sent his spirit that it was so they could do good work. But they were empowered to do the work that the Lord had given them, even if it was for a momentary time. After this spirit, though, is removed, he sends, the Bible says, another spirit, and the spirit that he sends him is tormenting him. Y'all, this is going to be something that is difficult for us to work with because this is a spirit that has been sent by God. And if this spirit is tormenting Saul, then how should Saul be responsible for anything that he does in response to this level of torment, even if it's sin? Is he responsible? Yeah. But I want you to understand why he's going to be responsible. And so there are some things that you need to remember. There are two things. The first thing is this. Saul rebelled against God's instruction. Saul rebelled against God's instruction. Regardless of how we feel about it, regardless of what we feel about our own sins, our sins welcome any and all consequences from God. We may think it's not right. We may think it's not fair. We may think it's unjust. But the just response to sin is death. And so when we sin, even if we think something that goes against God, we are in violation of God and thus deserving of death. And so even for Saul, his sins welcome all consequences. Now, by the time this happened, if you notice, Saul is, by description, an unwell man. And we'd already seen some of that in his erratic behavior before. Now, some people read this text and say, well, that's not a harmful spirit from God. Maybe he had a mental illness. There are modern-day psychologists who even said, well, it looks like he has schizophrenia or he's bipolar or he has paranoia. But the writer here clearly attributes this torment that he feels because God is sending it to him. Now, this may be hard to see God doing, but rejection and removal of God's presence in our lives comes at a cost. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and 10, we're actually told a little bit more about what that cost could be. Paul writes this, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, because they heard the truth and they rejected that truth, 
in order to be saved, what did God do? It says, therefore, wrap your minds around this. Think about if you can worship this kind of God. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Wait a minute now. This ain't the God that I heard about in Jeremiah. I know all the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper and all that stuff. This sounds like a different God. But if all these gods are in the Bible, then effectively there is one God, and we have to understand that God. He says, in our sin, because we have rejected him, that in his sovereignty, he will even send a delusion so that we will believe what is false. Is our world delusion? Of course it is. Thinking that we arrived here by some big bang, thinking that we have derived from eight. There are people that believe this because they looked up, as the Bible says, at the heavens and they saw the truth. They knew there was a God, but they rejected that God. And because they rejected that God, because they rejected that truth, he therefore now sends them a strong delusion so that they will not believe the truth. Why do so many wise men believe in unwise things? The Bible says, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. And you know what happens to their hearts? Their foolish hearts were darkened. When we reject God and his presence, it comes at a cost. And that cost is much more than what we can effectively pay. And so in the New Testament, we learn from Paul that the price of rejecting the truth is that God actually sends us a delusion so that the truth now becomes veiled. Now, I don't want you to wreck your brain too much, but I do want to wreck some of our way of thinking about God because we have a tendency when we think about God to actually shortchange who God is and what his majesty is. My whole purpose of preaching, my whole purpose of getting up is not to make us bigger, but it's to make God bigger and shrink us down as small as possible so that we can see in the grand scheme of things, we are nothing compared to a holy and righteous God. Because we will look at this and think, wait, how can God, who's supposed to be righteous and just and holy and good, how can he blind the eyes of the unrighteous? How can he send a spirit to torment Saul? But if you have a problem with God blinding the eyes of the unrighteous, then you also have to take issue with him opening the eyes of the unrighteous as well. Saul is being tormented by a spirit, something that has him in a nervous and paranoid wreck, but this is because he would not obey God's instruction. There are some who likewise have rebelled against God and the truth so long and so powerfully that God has sent them a delusion, something false, so that they will believe it. But then he says, so that all who have taken pleasure in unrighteousness might be condemned. 
Listen, all throughout the Bible, God uses people's wickedness, their own evil, to accomplish his sovereign plan. Now, if you don't believe that, let's look in the Old Testament. We see it with Pharaoh. Now, I'll read to you five different times if you don't believe that God will use man's wickedness for his own purposes. First one is in Exodus 9, 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That presents a problem, but that could be an outlier. Maybe that's a scribal error. Maybe they didn't mean the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Maybe they meant Pharaoh hardened his heart. Okay, you could be right. Then we have a problem. Exodus 10, 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people go. Exodus 10, 27. It's a trend here. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Exodus 11 and 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel out of his hand. 14 and 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. I just counted five times in the word of God that the Bible clearly says that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, does this mean a literal act? Does this mean a direct response or is this something else? Well, I think it's something of both, right? Now, this obviously will open up a discussion on free will and while we may have will and while we may choose, man can never do thing, anything independent of God. Okay? So you want to believe in free will all you want. Well, the only one in the world who's ever existed I know that has free will is God. Only God's will is totally free. And I'm going to show you how. There used to be this TV show that came on called Bait Car. And in this show, these officers would intentionally set up a really nice car, like a really nice car, in these predominantly crime-filled areas, and they would leave the car running with the keys inside with any, without any signs that an owner was nearby. And so every time, they would just keep a camera on that, and hundreds of people would pass by, and they would keep going. They wouldn't even pay attention to the car. Every now and again, one would hesitate because they thought it was weird that such a nice car would be sitting there not running, but then they'll go about their way. But then, that is until there is that one ill-intentioned person who would take this as their chance to steal the car. Now, once they would get in and drive off, the car would lock them in and officers would rush out. And almost every time, they would scream, You set me up! See, this is the thing. Free will isn't so convenient when we're being held accountable to it, is it? Many of us look up at God and even look at this scripture and scream like many of these people did. Entrapment. God, you set us up. But as with those thieves, 
opportunities to sin reveal the condition of our hearts. And in those moments, God allows us to choose to go against what is right. As God showed signs and wonders, they angered Pharaoh because he knew that their God was superior. And so every time that God displayed that, he hated the Israelites more and more. And his heart towards them grew colder and colder. And God knows that every time he shows how powerful he is, that it will cause Pharaoh to be even more unrelenting in his approach against the Israelites. So God is doing this to harden his heart. But why? Because every time he hardened his heart, he could show himself more powerful. And it became a greater display of the glory of the real God and not the work of magicians. And it would ultimately lead to God delivering the people. Pharaoh's hardening led to the salvation of Israel. And so in our text, why does God send this harmful spirit to Saul? Let's think about it. For now he has permitted Saul's disobedience, which has led him to the deeper and deeper despairing, which allows this to come on to him. That's the first reason. But the second reason is that it is setting the stage for David to become king. It is setting the stage for David to become king. When the friends of Saul notice that he is having what we would perceive as a mental breakdown, they then think, well, the only thing we have, we don't have fancy medicine, we don't have all this stuff, but we do have music. And so they think maybe if we get some quality music that it will be therapeutic to Saul. And every time this spirit comes on him, it would at least break it off of him long enough so that he could be coherent. Now, we can probably do something about music just from this text alone about what music does to your mental health, what, what music does to your spirit. But there's another time for that. When his men suggest this, he seems to be welcome to the idea, and he tells them, look, you're right. I need some good music played for me. Go and find someone. And so apparently there has been some time that has passed since we were first introduced to David, and he was keeping the sheep. But now it seems as if he's grown up a little bit, and he's become well known for several things. But one of the things that was known about him is that he was a skillful harpist. Now, I bet when David is anointed to be king, he's probably thinking, how in the world am I going to go from hanging out with the sheep to being the king of all of Israel? How in the world will God get that out of this little shepherd man? But that is the answer. God. God had given David his talent. He'd allow people to become aware of it, specifically the servants of Saul. He put this spirit on Saul so that they could think that he needs some good music in order to feel better. And it ends up that David is the one that he gets called for him to play. 
God has a big plan that he is orchestrating and all these things that seem to be detached and disconnected, God works them together according to his will and his purpose. Now, why does this give us hope? Because I bet in David's life, all those little individual things didn't seem like they were taking him on a certain course, but at the end of it, he can look back at the result and look, look how God had orchestrated all these things to happen for my good and for his glory. Notice the description, though, of David. It says that he is a man of prudent speech. He didn't use his words unwisely, but he was careful with what he said. He was a man of good presence. And finally, contrary to Saul, the Lord was with David. God is causing calamity in the life of Saul to eventually bring peace to all of us. See, David's gift opened the door, but it was his character that caused him to ascend to where he went. If nothing else, we have seen a pattern here. You can see more clearly and understand the working of God in your life if you live a life of good character and devotion to God. If who people think you are in public is consistent with who you are in private, then when things happen in your life, you don't have to wonder, is it my secret sin that God is warring against? When you are faithful to God in private, as faithful as you are to him in public, even when bad things happen, you say, you know what, God? I know I'm not hiding anything. So that must mean that you are working something out that I can't see right now. But see, this is the issue. If you're disobedient in private, if you don't know him in private as well as you do in public, then there is no guarantee that God is working any of that stuff out for your good. He might be working out the bad stuff in your life for somebody else's good. There are effectively, as I said, two positions you will be in obediently working in the will of God or disobediently working in the will of God. We have seen that private diligence is rewarded by God, sometimes publicly, but ultimately eternally. David has a good life, a good devotion to God. We saw it in Joseph's life. Even though it got hard for him, God was always with him and his good character always won out. But what we have seen in the life of Saul is that his fatal flaw was that he was trying to order and pattern his own life. The Bible says that the good man's steps are ordered by the Lord. That does mean that our obedience and our willingness to submit to God is leading us on the right path. While the unrighteous are on the path to self-destruct, we are on the path to righteousness. 
As a result, David ends up being the armor bearer to Saul. It is true that those of us who walk in the way of the Lord will not be hardened by his actions. Have you ever been in a situation, you a believer, with someone who was an unbeliever, and the same event affected you both and how angry and hardened and callous they got as a result, but how it pushed you closer to Christ? See, that's a part of the hardening of the heart, right? If I don't know him, my heart will never grow tender towards him. It will only grow hard. When we see God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, when we see him sending this spirit to torment Saul, that's because they are apart from him. But for the believer, suffering does not produce madness in us. It does not produce anger. It does not produce hardness or callousness, but it produces patience. It produces trust. It produces faith. And it conforms us into his image. And so let me ask you, in the face of the working of God, are you hardened and callous? Are you angry and bitter? Are you pessimistic about what tomorrow brings? Or are you placing more of your hope in Christ? Do the things that happen in life make you dread tomorrow? Or do the things that happen in life make you long for our eternal tomorrow? We likewise will only see the full working of God's producing faith if we trust him. We will only see the goodness of God when we are obedient and submissive to what he permits. Now, what is the message here? Is this just about David? Is this just about Saul? No. This message is that there was another son who was born among the animals. A song that normal people wouldn't have even considered. Yet he was humble. He was meek. He was lowly. And he was slowly exalted to kingship. Christ, the son who was rejected by his own, descended and out of the eternity, he condescended to take on human form, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. He humbled himself to death, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father as the only exalted Son of God, who at his name everyone will bow and everyone will confess once and for all that he is Lord and Lord of all and in all and of all. And we are saved by no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. God works through the meek, through the humble, through the lowly, through those of us who place our faith and our trust firmly in him, not the proud. The Bible says 
he opposes the proud. Think about that. If every time you think you're getting some leeway in life, there's a wall. And what if that wall ain't for sanctification? What if that wall is to reveal to you that God opposes you? But then it says, while he opposes the proud, to the humble, he gives grace. But then it doesn't just say grace, it says he gives more grace. There are effectively two places to be in life. If you hear nothing else from this, obediently submissive to the will of God, or disobediently, but still in the will of God. And the worst thing that you will want to happen in your life is that God is working your disobedience for somebody else's good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that you do give us examples like the example you gave us today in Saul and with David to show us that there are two ways to be. And God, many of us, unfortunately, have made the mistake to say that the thing that's been stopping us is Satan, but maybe the thing that's stopping us is you. God, maybe the struggles that we are in are because we refuse to hear and obey the truth. Maybe the torment that we experience, God, when nobody else knows about it, is because we reject you. And God, that means that if the good man's steps are ordered by you and lead up to you, that means that our steps, the steps of the unrighteous, well, they lead to destruction and peril. God, there are some of us who are in this room who do know you but have found ourselves at times combating the will of God over our lives. God, my prayer is that you just help us submit. Help us know that your way is better. Help us know that pride is not the way to the top, but meekness and lowliness. A humility that only comes from you, that was modeled to us by our Savior. But also, God, I know that there may be people in this room who do not know you at all. Who perhaps have felt the resistance against everything they've tried to do and accomplish thinking that it's Satan, but it's you. God, I pray that this is the day that you would open their eyes, that you would open up their ears, open up their hearts to not just see and acknowledge the truth, but to believe it. That you and your sovereignty send your son to be the atonement for our sins. And he paid the debt that we all owed. So 
So God, I pray that you will help us see that clearly. And for any of us who may be lost, that this would be the day that you find us and that you seal us for all of eternity. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.